part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. Some of you will say, I didn't know it was Christmas. Some of you will think, oh, it's Christmas in July. No, actually, we're going to look at uh, the end of Luke chapter 2. The first part is pretty familiar to us and because we happen to know not everything about, you know, uh, Christ, but we know a lot of things about Christ and his birth. We know that he was born in Bethlehem, that he was laid in a manger. We know that shepherds come to worship him. Angels sing and, you know, give this an announcement from God. Uh, he's presented uh, in, in time uh, at the temple, according to Jewish tradition. So we know a lot about the birth of Christ. And so uh, apart from Hollywood and all this other stuff, we can go to the scripture and say, okay, here's what the birth of Christ was somewhat like. We can even look at the ministry of Christ, probably started around the age of 30, and, and we begin to see that different things about the, the ministry of Christ, um, that he follows the announcement of John the Baptist that God had already laid out, that he was going to be the pre-runner. He selects 12 disciples. He goes around doing miracles and healings and he feeds thousands of people time and time again. And he comes and he presents the gospel, how he is the one that has come from God, that he is God, but that he is now uh, going to lay down his life. And it was a message that they really didn't, kind of, they just didn't absorb. But then we see that Christ, just as he predicted, is arrested and he's sent to die on a cross, placed in a borrowed tomb, and three days later he rose again. So we can look in the Gospels and we can find a lot about the, the life of Christ that is the ministry of Christ. But between his birth and between his, the start of his ministry, you know, kind of ages birth or let's say a couple months old to 30, there's just not a lot. In fact, the only thing that we have is what we find right here. Luke chapter 2 and starting about verse 41. We're not going to cover all of this. We're going to start in verse 47 in just a little while. But basically, what we know about those childhood years and the teenage years and early adolescence and all of that for Christ, this is all we've got. And I know that's frustrating to a lot of people because people want to know, okay, what was Jesus like at 13? Was he like my 13-year-old? I don't think he was. Uh, He was fully human, but he was also fully God. And and we see that he's in 100% compliance. It says here that he respected his, his parents, and none of us have aced that course before. Uh, none of us have. And, and so we wonder, you know, did, did his brothers and sisters know? I mean, can you imagine being the brother or sister of Jesus? And, you know, and your mom, Mary, comes up, why can't you be more like your brother? Because I'm not God. <laughs> I don't know that they had that understanding. I promise you they probably had that parallel, that question poised upon them. And so we just wonder. Well, in these few verses where we do get a little bit of the description of Christ when he was 12 years old, and, and kind of the, from there into his beginning of the ministry, what we find is really fascinating. And it's written down by a doctor who loved history. So a doctor, think precision. Think about somebody, you know, Luke was a doctor by profession, so he was used to looking at the facts and dealing with reality and truth. And yet he loved history. And so he recorded for us one of the Gospels under the inspiration of God to, to write down some details that the other ones haven't spoken about. 
And he captures this one time in Christ's life that's both fascinating but instructful. And especially to us today as we would pray for going back to school, whether you're homeschooled, whether you are Christian school, whether you're public school, whether you're, thank goodness, graduated and out of school, no matter where we would be in life and where our kids are in life, this is great instruction for us. Even then, this one account happens when Jesus is 12 years old. His parents are going to uh, Jerusalem for the Passover. It was not unusual in those days because they didn't have uh, mass transit, but they would kind of go in mass transit. And so a lot of people from this particular little city, like Nazareth, would all walk together and go to Jerusalem for two reasons. Number one, the fellowship. Okay, just it's fun with more people. And the other part is safety because the roads back in those days, I mean, if you're by yourself, you can be easily attacked. And so they would go in these big groups of people and they would enjoy the, the, the time. They go to Passover. They begin to return back home and this kind of blows every mom's mind. Dads were going, it could happen, you know? But they don't find Jesus for a day, okay? And then they begin to look for him. When they finally find him, it's been three days. But it's one whole day before they, you know, it's kind of like, you know, what was that old movie? Christmas time, the little boy gets left. You know, yeah, home alone. Well, he's not home alone, but he's alone. And so for a whole day, they don't know where he is. Where was he? Well, he stayed back at the temple. And he's hanging out with all the religious elite, all the really scholarly ones. You know, the ones that you can imagine with the gray beards coming down and, you know, all this pomp and circumstance. And he's there and he's talking with the smartest people on earth that day about the things of God. And yet they're learning from him. Look at verse 47. Luke 2, 47. And all who heard him, not some who heard him, not one who heard him, all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. If there's answers, what does that imply? There were questions. And most of the time when we get into a setting like that, it's the religious elite, it's the learned, it's the scholars that would maybe, you know, say, listen. Be quiet and listen and take in all this valuable information I'm about to give you. But somewhere in this discourse, they begin to ask questions. Sometimes maybe it's just out of the clarity. Did they want clarity on that he really understood? But he's being asked questions by the religious elite, the smartest guys on planet Earth at that time on these matters. And they're amazed at his answers. It's then that we see Mary and Joseph respond in full parent mode. Look at verse 48 and see if you relate. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. It's really kind of cool, that Greek word astonished. Uh, It doesn't mean, oh, there you are. It's a little bit more poignant than that because look what it says. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? The dad's back there. You know, Joseph's back there. I'm going to take you out. I'm going to take you out. Well, why, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in what? Great distress. Astonished and distressed. Can you relate, parents? Have you ever lost your child for five minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes in a public place? And it's like, oh, I love you, I love you. I'm going to kill you. You know, this mix of emotions. 
Part of you is rejoicing that they're safe and they're found. There's a part of you that says, this will never happen again, I promise you. We can understand that this is a pure human parenting moment. Very normal. And I think very normal is how we would describe most of the time of Jesus' growing up. In no way do I try to take away the deity of Christ. He's fully God, but he's fully human. And sometimes we always think that those are on a sliding scale. Uh, Look at my hands for a second, guys. Sometimes we think, okay, the more that he shows his deity, the less he's going to show his humanity. Or the more that he shows his humanity, the less that he's going to be deity. He's fully both all the time. And yet the Bible tells us, um, perhaps one of our closest clues uh, is in Philippians 2, where it says that, that Jesus emptied himself. Can it have a lot of different applications? Scholars are still scratching their head. Does that mean that he limited himself? He certainly did limit himself. We'll see that a little bit later on. By his own will, he limits himself. But it doesn't make him less deity. He didn't even flow back and forth. Okay, I'm God today. Well, I'm a little boy tomorrow. He's deity and humanity 100% all the time. And then look what Jesus says. As his mom says this, you know, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Jesus replied in verse 49. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? First time that we see something in the Bible. First time that we see somebody referring to God as their father. As far as I know, this is the first time that ever happened. It's a foreign thought to the Jewish, especially in the Old Testament. They did, took all the, the vowels out of Jesus or God's name so that they wouldn't even pronounce it. It was so sacred and holy. And yet now we have this young boy, and he responds to his parents, his early parents. Did, did you not know that I would be in my father's house? First thing that we see this connection, voiced and spoken. And the second thing that we find there is, is that it's the first words of Jesus that we see recorded. We don't see anything in the manger. We don't see anything, you know, the first words that we see him speak are are these words. Now I say profound because here's a 12-year-old and it seems that Jesus is very aware of who he is and God's call, his father's call upon his life. A lot of people have speculated, at what point in time did Jesus really say, okay, I am the Savior and I've come to die. Did he know that at 3? Did he know that at 7? Did he know that at 15? Did he know that at 30 when he began his ministry? I believe that he knew that in increasing knowledge. I'm guessing there. We can have coffee and discuss if you want to, but I'm thinking that God somehow gave appropriate understanding of his call upon his son's life in increasing fashion. And part of this was that limitation. I'm I'm just guessing there. I don't have any scripture, and I'm not going to go stand on something that doesn't have scripture or support. But I'm just thinking that it's not like when he's three years old that he's calling himself the Messiah. I don't know that he does that. But I don't know that he doesn't. But I do know this, because it's based on scripture. But at 12, he's beginning to grasp it. If not grasping it in somewhat fullness, then you know that I would be in my father's house, tending to my father's business. Somehow, even at 12 years old, I mean, most of us at 12 years old, it comes down to firemen, policemen, 
You know, it's, it's one of those. Or nowadays, Spider-Man or Batman. And it's going to be one of those two things. If you ask a 12-year-old boy, what do you want to be when you grow up? Superhero. But he grasped it here. Do you notice the word must in 49? Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? This is the beauty of the Greek language. That word must is a powerful, powerful word. It means the, uh, a connection. It means necessary. And Luke uses this throughout the ministry of Christ. In fact, uh, look at Luke 9, 22. Later on in the ministry of Christ. And Jesus, this is the words of Jesus. He says, thus the Son of Man, what? Must, the same Greek word, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Did Jesus, did he have an awareness of what was necessary? And God's call upon his life, he did. But he notices this at 12. He's already saying, I must do this. This word is really, really important. But now watch what happens in Luke's account of, of Christ's childhood. Verse 51. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. How many of y'all like that verse? And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. I bet she did. And I'm really not trying to be funny. I just, you know, this obedience, this submissiveness. He is the son of the living God. He is holy God and yet he's fully man. And yet what do we see here? He described that he came to Nazareth, that's the hometown, that's where he's going to grow up, and he was submissive to them. I I mean, again, I'm not trying to be silly, I'm just going, you know, do you think it ever crossed Jesus' mind? When Joseph said, go do this, well, you're not my father. I mean, that would maybe come out of some of our kids. It didn't come out of the mouth of Christ. He's submissive to them. And then we get to verse 52, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of the morning. This is the challenge to you this morning. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. End of all that we know of the life of Christ between 12 and 30. And while it's easy for us to stretch our heads and say, we don't know this, we don't know this, what do we know? This one verse, what, what do we know? How does this apply to Christ Jesus And what's the application of this truth and what happened in the life of Christ to you and I, to our kids, and what role do we have as parents and grandparents in the challenge of this verse? Look at verse 52 again. It says that Jesus increased. He grew. Again, the Greek is a beautiful language because it doesn't just kind of say black, white, or, you know, uh, remember the, the Crayola crowns when you got eight colors in there? And eight colors are a lot. You've got green and red and blue. Well, the Greek language is, is, is like that. Did you ever get the 256 color back? And that's the Greek language. All of a sudden, you've got fuchsia. You've got wintergreen. You've got colors that wasn't in that pack of eight. And, and the Greek language, well, we don't do it so that we can sound smart. We do it because it means something. They had words that kind of took on these colors and showed us something. So what does the word increase mean? It means that he grew, but the actual word is a word picture of an army advancing through the woods to make way for battle. 
And when you have an army of a thousand people, can you just kind of go on a little trail? You know what they would do? They would send out woodcutters in front of them. And they would cut a path to the battleground. So that thousands could come to battle. That's the word. That's the word to increase. It means to, to move forward. It means growing, advancing. Advancing to what? To the battle ahead. Now, now why, why did God instruct them to use that word? Instead of just putting in Jesus grew smarter. He, he was really the smartest kid in the class. He was a really good kid. Because there's something that I think believe that God wants us to learn here. Four things that we begin to see in this description of Christ. And it covers the four aspects of you and I in our creation. When God created us, could have created us and only just given us a soul. And we're just a soul without a physical body. Could he have given us a physical body without a brain? In other words, we're just kind of mechanical. We just kind of move about. Could he give us a, a body without a heart and emotions? I mean, there's a, God could have done it however God wanted to, but how did God do it? He gave us a brain. He gave us intellect. He was a heart that we identified with emotions. He, he gave us a soul that we're spiritual people. And he gave us a physical body. You know? Believe it or not, I used to be six foot one and about 130 pounds. Believe it or not. Well, we, we have things that would describe us the, the way that we look. And that's what we see here. Is that he says, okay, I'm gonna he began to increase. How did he increase? Four different ways. One, in wisdom. They increased mentally. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom is not just knowledge, but it's the application, the appropriate application of knowledge. We've all found people that were greatly knowledgeable but had no wisdom. Have you found people like that? Yeah. And and, and so this isn't just, okay, he got really smart and scored great on his SAT. That's not what he said. He increased in wisdom. And wisdom is that he grew in knowledge. I believe that means that he was smarter at 12 than he was at 8. He was smarter at 16 than he was at 12. And one of the things that we don't have time for today, but a really cool theological discussion, is how does God increase in wisdom? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, you're God. You're already the fullness of wisdom. But it comes back to this whole self-limiting thing that Jesus seems to have put on himself so that he can have the fullness of humanity. Kind of strange, it's an interesting theological concept that we don't have time for today, but it really does make you think, hmm, but the Bible tells us here that he increased in wisdom. Not only did he get smarter, but he knew kind of how to use it. Uh, Maybe a good example of this is in the simplicity of Matthew 7, when it talks about that there was this wise man and a foolish man. Remember that they were going to build a house? One person built a house upon a rock. One person built a house upon the sand. And when we get that illustration, one building on a foundation, that when the storms of life came, it stood. And the one that built upon the sand when the storms, the same storms, go back and read that parable, talks about it and gives the same description of the storms of life. But it stood. Why did it stand? One on the rock. Why did it fall? Because it's on the sand. Parents, grandparents. I mean, we want our kids to make good grades. 
been filling out some uh, recommendations for college for, for some of our kids. And I'm amazed at how smart they are. Just amazed. And we want that for our kids. But if you had knowledge or wisdom, which one are you going to take? There's a separation there in that parable of the wise man and the foolish man. Both are building a house. What kind of house do you want your kids to build? One that will stand the storms of life. Makes sense. To teach them to build on a foundation. And what is this foundation? This rock is Christ and Christ alone. Not just earthly wisdom. You know, with earthly wisdom, I, again, we're not disparaging that whatsoever. I mean, it'll get you into Georgia Tech. It'll get you into this place. It'll get you into that place. You know, wisdom is, I mean, knowledge is good. We're, we're not demissing that. What we're saying, man, if I have to pick for my child to have much knowledge or much wisdom, I, I won't list them. This is the appropriate application of that knowledge. And so the first thing here is that when you're building a house, building your life, you want your kids to build on the rock. That's the first thing he says, that he grew in wisdom. The thing, next thing is very simple. He grew in stature physically. We don't know how tall or strong Jesus was. More than likely, uh, he may not have been much more than five, six, five, seven, five, eight. That would have been kind of average Jewish height back in those days. Uh, and in fact, if you go back to Isaiah, it says that, you know, that he was not much to look at, Bobby's paraphrase. In other words, that he wasn't like, oh, this charismatic person that just comes and everybody goes, oh, look how beautiful he is. His beauty was much internal. It wasn't just that he was this, you know, wonderful looking guy, as best as we can tell by prophecy in Isaiah, and there's nothing that you know, stands out there in the Gospels. But he grows like a man would grow. He, he did train to be a carpenter. I mean, that's the house that he's living in. So I can imagine that when Joseph says, hey, go bring me those boards over there, that he picks up those boards and carries them over. And I, I believe that he's got some muscles about it. That's when his favor with God, to grow spiritually. This is more than just going to church, guys. This is more than just morality. How many of you want your children to go to church? How many of you want your children and grandchildren to be moral people? That's all good. That's all good. We're not putting that down. But I want you to see what this call is. This call is to have favor with God. And ultimately, there's only one way that we're going to have favor with God, and that is that they put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. This morning... I want Scarlett to have a wonderful life. I, I want her truly to, to keep going to church and find a church when she grows up and when she marries and, and when she has kids. I want them to be involved in church and I want them to be moral people. This morning she, she was baptized because she, that was her visible testimony this morning. that She has placed her trust in Christ and Christ alone to be right with the Holy God. Favor with God is through Christ. And our job as parents and teachers and the church is to help our children to grow, certainly to be moral, but also in the knowledge that they need Jesus. Ultimately, this is done in three ways. Training in God's word. God's word will reveal our need because it reveals our sin, but it also reveals a savior. Secondly, 
the example of our own passion. I'm always amazed that somebody from the womb can say, go dogs. Why, 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 why can they do that? Because mom and dad, every Saturday in the fall, go dogs. Our tigers, our gators, our jackets. But I mean, how does, how does somebody grow up in this area and have a passion say, go Gators. Because they had influence of somebody with passion. Wrong passion, but passion. (laughs) And and here God is saying, okay, I I want them to grow spiritually in favor with God, not just morality, not just uh, church attendance and checking the boxes. I, I want them to grow in passion for this God. And how do they do that? By seeing the passion in our lives. And last, and this is very, very important, church, whether you're a parent, grandparent, or you are here this morning as part of this body of believers, the encouragement of the church. You know, the Bible, one of my favorite verses when it talks about this great cloud of witnesses, I have been the recipient, brothers and sisters, I've been the recipient of being surrounded since I was a young kid by a great cloud of witnesses. God has put me in Bible-preaching churches with people that were living out the Christ life. Don't take that for granted. If you can't find it in this church, go to another church where you can find it. Because it is so important, not just for you to instruct at home, but to have. I mean, it's always amazing to me that when a dad said something, it's like they were sitting there going, and then Pastor Jeff says it, and it's like, hey, guess what? Or a coach says it, a Christian coach, and says something. And all of a sudden their ears are wide open. Hey, Dad, guess what? That was by God's design. That there would be a great cloud of witnesses for those tough parenting years. For those times when you say, I I don't know that I can go another day. He surrounds us with the church, the body of believers. People who've been there, done that, to say, hey, you'll go through. You'll make it through. By the grace of God, you'll make it through. Favor with God. And last, favor with man. And I don't know that we really biblically um, pay enough attention to this. I think it's a big deal. I'm in the world. I'm not of the world by biblical description. I'm to be peculiar, the Bible says, that we as the body of Christ are a peculiar people. So this doesn't mean that, okay, we agree with everybody and everybody agrees with us. But there's something here about this favor of man that, that we really need to look and do a study throughout the word of God about how important that is, that God will raise us up to have a good name in community. We don't do it to impress others of ourselves. We do it to point them to Christ. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 14 through 16? You are the light of the world, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. It's not so, oh man, what a great man that guy is. No, let them see your good deeds. Let them see that you're honorable, that when you make commitments, you keep commitments. When you owe debts, you pay your debts, that you do all these things that are honorable. Why? So they can say, man, that's the best man I've ever known. No, so they can say, wow, what is different about him? Oh, he worships God and he has a relationship with Jesus. 
And so there must be something about his faith to have favor with man. I believe that Jesus had a lot of friends. I believe that he was respectful to others. Again, I don't want—I don't know that I would have wanted to be his brother or his sister. But I believe that he had favor with man for those that were truly, sincerely looking at who Christ is. That's why we want to take time to pray this morning for the new school year, for teachers that will be instructing them, for friends that will have and can influence and be influenced. Remember that word increased? What did we say that that meant? To prepare a path for, for battle. You're, you're cutting down trees so that there's a pathway that you're going to go for battle. Now, this is not meant to be negative. It is meant to be as observant as we can be. Guys, whether you homeschool, whether you Christian school, whether you public school, are we sending them off to battle every day of the school year? And the Bible says that we are the that Jesus increased in wisdom. He grew physically. He grew in knowledge of God and closeness and passion with God and in favor with man. Please hear my heart, and maybe I shouldn't even say this in the sense I don't want to take it off thing. Because well, we really do want our kids to be the best football player or basketball player or this or that. There's a lot of things, and there's nothing inherently evil from that. But don't let that be the major passion push in your life. We have instruction from the Word of God today that our kids may increase, that is, prepare a way for battle and the battle that they're going to face in this world, that they're prepared to grow in wisdom. Not just one plus one equals two, but to know the application of that. To grow physically strong because God made us physical beings. To grow in our favor with God. Not just to do religious things, but truly to reflect a passion for Christ in our life. In favor with man. And and today, not to put this heavy on you parents, but that is our biblical responsibility. We're helping to cut down those trees, preparing them for battle. And that's why this morning we want to pray. Part of the preparation for the new year is to cut down some some lines to the battleground. And we accomplish that through prayer. So we're going to have the time to pray over these kids today and and, um, just to, to lift them up before the Lord. To pray for our teachers that will be instructing them. And some of those teachers are you at home. Carly and I did not feel called to that. We, we prayed about it. We prayed about Christian schools. We felt very strongly that we were to, our girls were to go to public schools to be light in darkness. And yet I, I understand that everybody has their prayers. You know, I've been asked many times, what's the right thing? Public school, private school, Christian school? The, the one that God lays upon your heart. God forbid that we take all the Christians out of public school, God. And yet this morning, what, a, what an opportunity to pray for homeschool moms and dads. I think one of the reasons why we didn't do it is because I, I was sure that one day I'd come home 
and, and my oldest daughter and my wife would be dead on the floor with both of their hands around each other's neck. And the only question would have been is, who died first? And I'm much more serious about that than you would ever believe. <laughs> so what do we do this morning, guys? We just want to pray for these kids. We want to pray for our teachers that they may increase in these things. And I'm going to do something that I, I usually don't do that much because I don't like the lack of control in the sense of, okay, what's going to happen now? But I'm going to ask one or two people if they feel like they want to pray this morning. And where did Jeff go? Up, oh, right in front of me. I thought you were that big kid in class. Jeff, will you lead us? And then if somebody else would want to pray, just you know, pray. It doesn't have to be a long prayer. Just kind of pray. And then I'll, I'll wait, and there's another person, and then I'll close this after that time. And Sherry's bringing me a mic, but I like to make people get outside of their comfort zones. What I want is all kids, middle school, high school, elementary school. I want all kids right up here. Every, all of you kids stand up. College kids. Are there college kids in here? Come on up, too. But I want all, I, want, I just want, I'm very, I don't think my mic's on. I'm very visual. And so I want us as a body to see the impact that we have, okay? So all elementary, middle, high school, college kids, everybody just kind of come around right here. And, and so our body, our family can see. You don't have to spread out all like that. Y'all could, y'all could all stay up together. <laughs> but I want us to see as a church family what is at stake, Right? And I see moms crying out there right now. Right? But this is what is at stake. And I wasn't in here to hear the sermon, and I'm going to try to preach it again. But this is what is at stake right here. And if we don't realize it, the world does. Okay? And so I know we had the cards go home. I'm waiting for all those to come back. But we're going to need Cornerstone family to select or, or, or sign up to pray for these students. Because prayer changes things. Amen. Okay, so let's close our eyes. Students, don't move. Don't bother your neighbor. <laughs> I tell me, Father, Lord, we thank you for today. Lord, we thank you for all these young men and women that are up here. Lord, we thank you for the families they represent. And Lord, just as Bobby said, Lord, we thank you for them being the light in the schools the light on the sports team, the light at dance recital, the light at cooking class, Lord, the light at home school. Lord, many of these students, Lord, we know them very intimately and some we don't. But Lord, you do. Lord, I just pray that you would give them a comfort, a peace. Lord, that these young people don't understand. Lord, as us old timers don't understand. As many of them are starting new schools, new grade levels, new buildings, new friends. Lord, that you would just guide the people. Lord, you would guide friends. And maybe, Lord, that they would have to leave some friends. Lord, that are taking them away from you. And Lord, for our teachers. Lord, for our Christ-loving teachers. Lord, that they would be the lighthouse in those school buildings. Lord, that they would be the beacon. Lord, when there's an issue, Lord, a student would know what classroom to go to. 
And Lord, that our teachers would stand firm on the cornerstone. Lord, on the rock. And Lord, that their peers would know that you are first and foremost in their life. Lord, we just thank you for how you love us. Lord, I thank you for giving Cornerstone all of these students up here that we get the opportunity to pray for them. Yes, Lord. And Lord, that we get a Lord that we get a mentor them, we get a disciple them. Lord, we just get to do life with them. Lord, please stir our hearts. And Lord, I just heard a little bit of the sermon, but cut down trees that don't need to be there. Lord, clear away. Lord, let every one of these students know that they matter. Lord, that their mom and dads love them, their pastors love them, but Lord, you love them way more than we could ever love them. Lord, please let them know that. Let them know that they matter. Lord, they're here for a reason. And Lord, we thank you for baptism today. Lord, because that's the reason. Lord, we thank you for that. Lord, we love you. Heavenly Father, we bow before you in the name of Jesus, thanking you for this fruit that we see before us, dear Father. Father, thank you for the parents that have raised these children. Thank you for the pastors that teach these children. Thank you, Father, for the family that love and support them. Father, may we as a church and as a Christian family teach them your ways. Let us be a strong, loving, comforting place for them to come and share their concerns. Give them the strength that they need to fight the battles that they will be fighting when they go out into this world and the school grounds. Schools are not always the best place, but you've put your people in every corner of this world and we are to go and tell others about you so that they can learn the truth. Thank you for letting these children hear the truth so that they can stand for the truth. Thank you for giving them the tools that they will need to prepare themselves to leave the nest. Thank you, Father, for being our God, for being our loving, kind and God. And thank you for allowing us to see favor in you because you've taught us the truth and you've set the standards. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Father, we thank you today for these precious image bearers that stand here before you. Each one so different, but each heart so precious to you. Each one known to you by name. You know each one's heart, Lord. And you know exactly how to speak to them and how to get their attention. And so we pray your protection over them this morning. We pray that even if there are those who have not yet made a decision in their life for you, that they will know that you see them. You see them with your eye. Your hand is on their lives. We thank you for moms and dads who have spoken your gospel over these precious kids. We thank you for teachers who will have an impact on them. And I thank you, Lord, for a church who loves you dearly. Father, we pray all of these things in your precious son's name. And we come to you and we are thankful, so very thankful. Amen.
And so, Father, as we close this service today, we do pray that all these kids before us, Father, that they would increase in wisdom and in stature and in favor with you and favor with man. Father, as they prepare for the battlefield, Father, you would so equip them with the truth of your word, the power of your spirit, and a community that supports their parents. Father, we pray for the teachers that have a part in this, that even in places where they cannot speak your name or Father, be too vocal about uh, their private beliefs, Father, they carry with you their spirit. And Father, your spirit is powerful brings a kindness, a strength, a love, a grace, Father, that words cannot even begin to match. So, Father, we love you, and, Father, we we pray for one another. We pray for that we would be a church that truly would be a great cloud of witnesses, that these kids could stand maybe 30, 40, 50 years from now and say, I grew up in a place where there was a great cloud of witnesses that God used encourage me in my walk and my faith. May we be that church as we pray all these things in the hope that is heaven, that is Christ, that is all that you have accomplished, God. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.